When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Willkommen, bienvenue, welcome. No, this is not cabaret, it's Think About It, a podcast about the power of ideas and how language can change the world, with Uli Baer. What does power have to do with free speech? And how do we find a way to let everybody speak on equal terms? Today I'm joined by Sarah Kenny, who's a former student and the president of the Student Council at the University of Virginia. In our conversation today, she talks about the contested legacy of Thomas Jefferson at the University of Virginia, about disputes over civility, and of her experience of being at the center of the disastrous events of the summer of 2017. Today, I'm really excited to speak with Sarah Kenny, who was the president of the Student Council, is that correct, at the University <laughs> of Virginia? And you just graduated also, I assume, just this spring in 2018, right? So you're freshly minted college graduate. So thanks for taking the time out of your life as it is about to begin, right? <laughs> Thank you so much for having me. So I really appreciate it. So you, well, from what I gather, you were active in student government at the University of Virginia. And then you were elected about the spring in 2017, toward the end of the spring. So you came in as president in the summer or effective in the fall of 2017, right? I came in as effective in late March, okay, but wow. so the majority are... of my term really kick-started with the summer of 2017. Wow. So can you talk a little bit about that? First of all, I mean, great that you became president, so that must have been exciting, but also what a daunting year to be president at UVA, right? Absolutely. My election in and of itself paralleled the politics of the November 2016 presidential election to begin with. I was seen as the Clinton candidate and my opponent was an active Trump supporter with strong familial ties to Virginia state government. And so from the moment that I was elected, I felt that I shouldered this burden of kind of correcting for what was happening on the national landscape on my college campus and in Charlottesville. I could never have expected the range of issues that I would have to deal with as president. I was very much kind of thrown into the the media spotlight on a number of occasions to speak on behalf of the 22,000 graduate and undergraduate students through your, your kind of regular run-of-the-mill student government issues, but some really national and international touch points that summer and that fall as well. Right. I, I can't even imagine because you are supposed to speak on behalf of all the students to the administration largely, but mm -hmm. now you're addressing the whole world yeah. because UVA and Charlottesville become the symbol for 
this bigger issue. So could you say a little bit how this summer unfolded for you? You, were, you said you were already doing the work that to represent the, the other campaign for the, for the whole country on, on your own campus. Yeah, sure. So I was in Charlottesville that summer doing a couple of internships, but one of which was an internship to prepare for my upcoming year in this position. And as I heard about the KKK demonstration that was scheduled to happen in July and the Unite the Right rally scheduled to happen in August, I began to compile information, speak to some sources, the mayor, and I recall sending pretty comprehensive email to the deans at our university and saying, okay, this is the intel that we have at the moment. What are we going to do for students? How are we going to counter program? How are we going to make sure that both the current and incoming students feel as if this is a safe place for them to attend college and that we can really walk the walk of the values that we espouse? So the, the message that I was given counsel to disseminate was avoid engagement with these forces. Don't give them a platform. Use better speech, use louder speech to counter these foolish, these ridiculous, these really trivial narratives, which was in line with, I think, a lot of American political thought on free speech in that just counter speech with louder speech. I'll defend your right to say what you want to say, but in the end, the better speech will win out. And I think what this mindset in retrospect revealed was a lack of consideration of power imbalances in who gets to talk and how they get to speak associated with rights of assembly. And ultimately, the the guidance that I received was, was making a moral judgment about how people should engage with speech that most of the world sees as abhorrent. And that brought with it a whole host of challenges for myself and for leadership in the city and university. It's astounding you were put in the middle of this contentious, complicated debate around speech, where you're saying, where on the one side people say, there is hateful, vile speech we abhor, but since we still don't want to do anything about the existence of this speech, so we're going to put it on you to counter speech and say something else. And you brought this to the attention. It's interesting. So you sort of busied yourself studying up on what's going to happen. How did you get a sense that this was going to be worth dealing with over the summer? It was your summer, basically, and you were writing to deans and people like that. Yeah. I ran on a platform that centered around equity, diversity, and inclusion. And so this was an opportunity to demonstrate that Student Council, a more traditionally conservative and institutional organization, really stood by those ideals and could be an ally and a partner with multicultural and advocacy organizations. But there was this sense, too, that people were kind of underestimating the extent to which these events were out of the ordinary as I kind of processed what this was going to mean, I remember sitting in history class in elementary and middle school and hearing about similar demonstrations, but never thinking that I would have to experience or witness those nevertheless make kind of a leadership call about how we would respond to these. And there's, there's no playbook, there's no training for how you prepare a student body to mentally, physically, spiritually handle group that's coming to kind of trample on some of our student body's fundamental identifiers. 
And you're looking back, you're saying there's no preparation, there was no training and peaceful resistance or actually real workshops of how to even yeah. deal with that, which is what, if you go back 50 years during the civil rights movement, people just didn't walk into such situations mm -hmm. without preparation also to keep people safe. So it was on you suddenly to think, how do we express the values of the university? And the message was, as you're saying, largely to just don't amplify this, let this blow by, it'll happen, and then we'll move on. And these things occasionally occur, I guess. So yeah, and supporting an agenda of Vice Provost, who was putting together a rather comprehensive kind of counter-programming event. A lot of business leaders rally behind the idea of counter-programming. So instead of attending the protest, let's create our own event. Let's display signs in our stores with blue hearts that say we love Charlottesville. Let's make our message louder than others. So I, I got behind that agenda. And so you were sort of going through the summer. There was a Klan rally, you said, earlier in the summer, right? In in July. In July, right? And that sort of was, were you in Charlottesville at that time? So was there anything, okay. could you learn anything? Did you think, okay, there in that case it worked, the counter speech was louder? I'm also curious, who is listening to that speech? So right. who is it being addressed to? Did the nation pay attention to both sides of this message? Yeah, I think the, the Klan march went under the radar much more so than the August march, in part due to the fatalities that resulted from the August rally, but also due to the fact that students were getting ready to begin the academic term in August, and there were less students on grounds in July, and it was a smaller demonstration. Mm -hmm. I think also the idea that the Klan is the oldest domestic terrorist group in United States history and has been kind of studied and by and large refuted in American classrooms presented a very different situation than the alt-right, which is a term that was coined by one of our alumni in 2008. And so this is a much more kind of clean-cut, I guess, normal presentation by individuals who you could see in the grocery store, you could see in your professional environments and not really question. I mean, the Klan, it's, it was easy to see in, in their robes that this was utterly ab abhorrent. And I think there was this kind of sentiment that this was this like sad, small, little, last dying breath of individuals who drove up from maybe North Carolina it was, but the alt-right was a, a national collective of kind of this new branding of the same sort of white supremacist ideology. But I think that caught a lot more people off guard. So you have a different mix of people coming, including UVA graduates, people mm -hmm. in khakis and polo shirts, good haircuts, look right. like, you know, all-American kind of in a way, right? Exactly. And and they're coming on your campus, obviously, as a graduate of University of Virginia, they're coming on your campus to claim the legacy of Jefferson. So can you say a little bit about that, how students felt about that? Because I think the August 11th events are really around, this, around the statue of Thomas Jefferson in front of the rotunda. Absolutely. So since I arrived on grounds in 2014, I noticed kind of a strange relationship to Thomas Jefferson that existed at UVA. In some ways, he was very romanticized. People invoked his name quite often in a way that I found rather peculiar. And in 2017 and 2018, the relationship changed from one of either neutral or generally, I guess, positive 
sentiments to a much more critical nature, sentiments that were broadly shared by, I would say, the majority of the student body. And there, there was a true movement to not only recontextualize the history of this complicated figure, but to really full out condemn his influence, his namesake. There was a petition from a large number of professors, deans, and students calling President Sullivan to cease use of his name in any official university communication, which infuriated the alumni base who very, very strongly attach Jefferson to their university experience. So Amidst the conversation of the Robert E. Lee statue and other Confederate memorials and how do we appropriately kind of place and contextualize this history, there was a very strong undercurrent in the student body saying, we want nothing to do with him. How, how can we ever pretend to talk about the ideals of equity and inclusion if our namesake owned other human beings. And I mean, just this past spring, students on Thomas Jefferson's birthday spray painted rapist and racist over the statue. The Washington Post called me for a comment and my term was done at that point in time, but there was no way I, I would win in commenting on that. That's really interesting. So there's a really deep engagement with the founder of this university. It is not just Thomas Jefferson, the founder, framer of our country, but it is of your university. And the students are saying these values that he had go so much counter our values that we want to disavow this. Right. They obviously can't throw the charter out and pretend he didn't start the university that's going <laughs> to be there, right? This right. country and this university were founded. And that's so interesting how your university becomes a kind of mirror of what's happening with this Robert E. Lee statue, right, in a way. But who is not seen as the founder of America, but of a certain cause and the South. So Jefferson stands for all America, and you're saying the students were saying not for the type of Americans and the kinds of values we espouse. Exactly. So, but there was no move to pull down the statue or relocate it or something. Or <laughs> No, and, and the statue itself has a very complex and rich history. It was sculpted in France by a very kind of long-standing American Jew who his family's been a big part of U.S. history, and there are little mini figures surrounding Jefferson who represent religions of the world. And so the, the very statue itself represents the kind of crux of the paradox of Jefferson's espoused ideology. Right. And you have two kind of warring sides of the far right and the older alumni base who says, don't touch his legacy, every human's imperfect but he is what the university stands for to us. I mean, the university in itself was a, a rather revolutionary thought experiment, right. that the rotunda, a center of knowledge, was the epicenter of the university rather than a religious institution. Right. And this sort of public education with a bent towards training the next generation of citizen leaders, that was a novel concept. And so that's what the university means to them. But there was a lack of kind of consideration of how we can contextualize in this conversation. Right. We need well, to acknowledge this, but... When I'm listening to you, it's interesting. You are a product of this university, and I would say you exemplify, in a way, a citizen leader taking on your right and obligation to question and challenge who we are as Americans. In some ways, you would think, how does the legacy play itself out, and can it actually move beyond, out of the ken of the influence of Jefferson? So you're leading the student body, or you're trying to speak on behalf of so many disparate voices, right? Mm -hmm. 
And so on the 11th of August, these people come and they want to claim their Jefferson. And they don't just want to claim the Jefferson because they went to school there and they like that name. They have really a strong claim on different parts of what he, what he, what his legacy is. These alt-right people who are coming back, they want to say it's not equity and inclusion. It's quite the opposite. Right. right. Interesting. So what happens on the 11th and then the 12th, sort of in terms of what you're doing, because you're managing a bit the student council, right, the undergraduate council, you're representing that, but you're also just a student there. Right. So I was not actually in Charlottesville for those events. I had yeah. just gotten back from a fellowship trip in China, and I was very jet-lagged, and it was the night of the 11th, and right. was, I got in bed and saw a tweet about some unusual activity and texted my vice president, call the police chief, figure out what's happening, get wow. a message out to the student body. Woke up the next morning to punches being thrown on national and international television and kind of just haven't looked back since. I, I spent the next few days, which were my only real days at home with my family of the yep. summer, completely consumed, getting phone calls from press, but also kind of a jockeying among students to claim ownership of the event and to kind of make this event about their headline. So I'm going to put on this event and get the attention. I'm going to put on this event, this response and get the attention, which okay. was challenging to deal with. But I returned to grounds where I moved onto the lawn. Our nameplates are on our doors and to be a public figure and know that Richard Spencer and Jason Kessler walk around that school and could see where I lived was a rather horrifying experience that lasted throughout the year. Because um, you identified as the president of the undergraduate student council and the grounds and all that, that's where the undergraduates live, right? Just for people who right. are not familiar with UVA. So you move back to campus after all of this and now you have to basically, you have to manage what students want to do in response to these horrific events. Right. So there was a vigil that a proxy for me helped plan a candlelight event, which was broadly criticized by a lot of the student body for forcing this kind of unity kumbaya narrative too soon in the equation. In response to that, and partly on its own, there was another event the night before classes started. It was called the March to Reclaim Our Grounds, and it was spearheaded by the Black Student Alliance and some other advocacy groups, where in which they read a list of 10 demands, many of which dated back to 1970, when Student Council's very first African-American president read a list of demands amidst Vietnam anti-war protests mm -hmm. to then University President Edgar Shannon about their hopes for a more diverse and inclusive university campus. Mm -hmm. Our university president was in the crowd of the amphitheater that night. They had everyone in the jam-packed audience turn towards her as they read this list of demands. And they proceeded to march to the front steps of the rotunda where city and community activists surrounded the statue once again. And what ensued around those demands really defined the free speech debate for the rest of the year. And what happened was that student groups voted on whether or not to support these demands or not. And this initial vote of support played out in the kind of chambers of student council. We had a town hall where we collected opinions. And then our representative body held a vote. We had 200 people crammed into a small room waiting to hear whether or not student council would kind of define itself as a progressive ally 
if it passed these demands or not. And can you give a scope of what the demands entailed? So what did they encompass? They come from 1970. So in some ways, it sounds like also not all of them had been realized, I guess, in the last yes. 48 years. So, yeah, acquiring a more diverse faculty, increasing the matriculation rates of black and minority students, removing Confederate plaques on the front of the rotunda, which the Board of Visitors honored within that fall, which was pretty remarkable. A plaque by the Jefferson statue contextualizing his legacy, to name a few. Mm -hmm. But some of these demands were quite ambitious in scope and involved actors and institutions that lay far outside any of our <laughs> authorities. And so I got a huge amount of criticism for taking a few days to investigate the scope of our realization of some of these demands, for which I got scorched for not giving an automatic approval. And so I got a huge amount of criticism for that first and foremost. And then in our... And how was, how was that for you? <laughs> it was the beginning of a year of <laughs> a lot of criticism for trying to represent all students. And what's yeah. challenging about these positions is that I wasn't elected by an ideological party. I have to represent conservative and liberal voices, and I have to listen to all opinions before making a decision. And the the far left is loud and very vocal, and they showed that in our meeting to pass demands. But conservative students also showed up to try and speak. There were defenses of Thomas Jefferson. There were researched and reasoned kind of qualms with the logistics of some of these demands. Conservatives and liberals both left that meeting and didn't return to other student council meetings because they were so offended by the other perspectives that they heard, which really set the tenor for the year. Conservatives would try and speak, and people were booing, snapping, shouting, standing up, protesting their speech. And I was put in this position of how to balance civility and the very raw and real emotions right. of being able to stand up to speech that you find abhorrent. Right. Well, did you able to apply any kind of rules and say everybody gets a minute or something and you have to respect the rules and be silent during that minute or that didn't, did that work? Or, I mean, so we, we tried to implement this, such a system. Hmm. I, I met with the mayor, Mike Signer, over the summer about how they ran their city council meetings. And they had a sign-up period for public comment at the beginning with three-minute intervals of quiet, respected speech. And if you interrupted that speech, you would be warned and then escorted out by law enforcement. This is not to say that city council meetings had any more luck than us. I mean, the few I attended, people stood up with middle fingers out. Wow. They sang, they swayed, they yelled, they were escorted out in rows and lines. So city council in Charlottesville was not a model of civility either, but we tried to implement this respected kind of three minutes of speech. But there was this sense of a moral higher ground where in which they, they could break these rules or what was just, what was right. And our enforcement of civility was seen as trying to give a platform to opinions that undermined the humanity of students in our So that's class. really tricky. I've, that's interesting. So when civility itself or the rules of discourse or respecting the right to speak or truth is seen as a kind of an, a strong curtailment or act of aggression towards some people or towards some values, right? So you're saying, I'm just implementing rules that everybody will adhere to. And some people are saying, those rules are against me. 
those rules Absolutely. don't work for me. So you're mm -hmm. kind of the position. So how do you then step out and create better rules above that that everybody agrees to? But you also have to run the student government. So you don't have time to say, let's rethink all the rules of civil discourse, which we've been thinking about since the days of Thomas Jefferson in this country. Right, clearly. exactly. <laughs> <laughs> and were you... Were you helped or was it helpful to talk to administrators or faculty or other students and say, how do I deal with this? Because I want to respect free speech for people, but I also want to respect civility and not get things into the mix that are so offensive that people walk out. Yeah, I think everyone was kind of as befuddled as I was about how to manage the situation. There were a number of times where in which I asked for administrative presence at meetings when there was a particularly controversial discussion being debated. And on the one hand, I was thrilled to have the most salient debates on campus happening in the chambers of student government. This was the original town hall in action. This right. meant that people thought this institution was relevant, that they thought this was a forum where their ideas could not only be expressed, but could influence policy and how they played out at the university. So on one hand, that was fantastic, but it also showed the true lack of such spaces that we had in that listening to another perspective's viewpoint and this, I have to preface this with saying there's no way to kind of draw a parallel to the raw and really unbelievable emotions people were feeling in the aftermath of August. But this year's debates really showed the lack of such space as we have for people to come together with very different views and sit there and listen to that view and figure out how they're going to respond to that. And there are spaces that we need a lot more of, I think, on college campuses. Interesting. And in some way, I think within the university it's such spaces and then people think the university itself should be the space for society mm -hmm. where you could have these very very right. controversial because as we also see in the twitter sphere etc there's not so much exchange right now between really strong partisan positions people mm -hmm. are just sort of looking at each other and saying this is my fact or this is my truth mm -hmm. this is my truth this is my fact i'm not even believing your truth so you are sort of in the middle of this working out both a kind of campus that seems to has gone through a real trauma and you're trying to see what are the rules to make this work and move forward in a way that everybody is carried along. Right, right? exactly. And then are you supposed to bring these things, these resolutions or something to the administration? Is that your role as the president to say we voted on this? Is this what, and you have to then address everybody, the public, your student body and the administration? Yeah, um, the the University of Virginia model of student self-governance grants an incredible amount of autonomy to the student council and that we are a quasi-agent of the state um, and that we like control funds for student activities and we are an agency or what we call a special status organization. So my responsibilities are mainly to the student body and our actions in the representative body unanimously voted on these demands, for example, and um, that kind of set the tone for the student body campus at large and other organizations voting. But when we do pass legislation and resolutions calling for actions, I absolutely do bring those forth to the board of visitors and the administrators I'm in partnership with. And the board of visitors honoring the the demand to take down to Confederate plaques on the rotunda was an example of, of that partnership of play. Right. So that worked. And then mm -hmm. the other demands in some ways 
Do you think they were meant to address something that hadn't been done since the 1970s and this just came to the surface? And what, Or was it a way to respond directly to the events of 2017? Because there's two separate things. If they've come from the 1970s and you think people have had this on their mind for a long time. Yeah, I think some of them are perennial tensions and frustrations with the university. Our percentage of black students is hovers around 6%, which is lower than it was in the late 20th century. We have not committed requisite resources to hiring a diverse faculty and staff that will attract more diverse students to matriculate. Our numbers do not reflect the state of Virginia or the country in terms of our demographics. And so those are very residual tensions that were illuminated by the events of August. But some of the demands were kind of fresher to this debate around recontextualizing Confederate monuments and statues and historical figures that taking place in the cities across our nation. And how do you think the student body at UVA generally feels a year later. So in some ways, when you look back at your presidency, it must have been incredibly challenging. And I just cannot imagine that you you took this on not knowing you're going to take on addressing a controversy that has echoed across the country and hasn't really played itself out. I don't think a lot of people are not quite sure what the events of Charlottesville mean a year later, whether it's possible to just assign a meaning and move on when somebody was murdered there, many people were injured, they're still suffering from those injuries. So the events of August are very much still painful for everyone who was there. They will have resounding implications for the people who experienced it in the city for for decades to come. I think in the aftermath of Charlottesville, I worked hard to center the, the narratives and the dialogues of students of color, the minority organizations, the multicultural advocacy groups who were experiencing trauma in perhaps a different way than I was as a white student. And the range of trauma that people feel is very varied. But a year later, I think one of my biggest commitments as president was to make sure that we don't forget and that we don't tie a bow around this and draw some neatly packaged conclusions and move along. A large criticism of what happened in Charlottesville was that these were outsiders who unfortunately landed upon our little southern college town and said, this could have happened anywhere. This is not Charlottesville. Once they left, Charlottesville's back to normal. No, the reason that this happened in Charlottesville is tied to the legacy of this city and this university. And that's not something that's going to go away. And so I think it's the job, especially of individuals with privilege like myself as a white student to make sure that we don't forget this and to remember that a lot of people are still walking around with the weight of this on their shoulders. And even just this morning, I saw a news update that Jason Kessler has received a permit from the National Park Service to hold an anniversary rally in front of the White House on August 11th and 12th, which is deeply harrowing and feels almost unimaginable to emotionally process again. And it brings up really interesting questions for our discussions of free speech in this country. So the government has allowed the KKK to march through Washington, D.C. because they have protected political speech. But I think we are at a real crossroads of understanding the causal nexus between speech and action in that Richard's 
Spencer and Jason Kessler have incited violence, and they have strategically manufactured marches that will trigger and cause harm to individuals psychologically and physically, as demonstrated last year. And they're not afraid to do it again. And I think we as a nation need to think very critically about this causal nexus that I think some, I guess, classically liberal individuals have brushed off as the, the broad scope of protected political speech that makes this country great. On the flip side of that paradigm, I think the events of August have amplified a trend in colleges across the country where in which speech is viewed at, free speech is viewed as the enemy political tool of the progressive cause, and it is not that. And we need to remember that the United States is the most liberal democracy and nation in the world for protected speech, and that has enabled social justice movements to take place at rapid speeds and proportions in this country like no other. And free speech cannot be the enemy of social movements, which a lot of college students are seeing it as now. They're seeing it as a defense of the kind of old order of protecting and allowing political views that undermine their very humanity. And so I think we have a lot of really important and hard conversations to have that are starting on college campuses about this relationship between equity and speech. And I think you're absolutely right to identify this kind of worry and concern that they're saying this free speech is used as a kind of slogan or a weaponized concept that doesn't benefit actually the values that all universities presumably espouse because they're also constitutionally mandated, sort of equality mm -hmm. is not just a, an idea, it's actually a legal <laughs> obligation. Right. Right. And it's interesting what you're saying about the fact that Kessler and Spencer, they, they went to march in front of the White House, and they wanted to come to Charlottesville, and you're saying it wasn't just to pick any college town where they just happened to go to school. It is about to go to the birthplace of American democracy, and now about the seat of power, right. and the institutions that actually govern our democracy. So they want to be in places that have enormous symbolic value. Absolutely. And it's it's interesting, and some for you, you were thrown into the spotlight too. You had to speak on behalf of everything, including you know American democracy, not just your college campus, the safety of your students, and representing many voices. Where do you see yourself sort of having processed this now to a point, but saying, I really appreciate you saying, and not to move on and not to forget and say, well, I'm done with this, and you know, I have my life and I can forget and revisit for reunion or you, I guess one of your siblings is at the university, right? So, so you can sort of visit her. But you're saying, so how should, would be your recommendation? How do you remember this in a, in a more productive way? Personally, I'm spending this next year working on a memoir about my experience as student council president. I want to get millennial and youth voice out talking about what these events meant and kind of having to defend what you're talking about, the very kind of ideals of American democracy, but also what that means in terms of Trump's presidency, where in which many of these ideas that undergird our assumptions of free speech, such as factual information and a free press and a reliable press seem under attack. So those, those elements are very much complicating, I think, the narrative in a way that we haven't seen before. But I think that it's it's deeply important for our university to integrate into our educations as these purported next citizen leaders an understanding of 
this universities, this cities, and this nation's fundamental fabric of um, racial injustice and paradox about what equality means. I think that is absolutely crucial. Um, we are rolling out some kind of new waves of curriculum in the College of Arts and Sciences, and I think that such education and conversation really needs to be prioritized. The university is also has moved to consider some time, place, and manner regulations on who can speak, and I think that on the administration's part, some really rigorous thought about what the public square means. And moving forward for other students um, at other campuses, I think relying on other student leaders as a powerful youth coalition is deeply important. There's power in numbers, there's power in this idea of the next generation. And I think we need to renew a commitment to having conversations that respect the humanity of other people. I'm not saying that we give a platform to the Richard Spencers and the Jason Kesslers of the world, but I'm saying that we do engage in dialogue with people who think differently than us, because where else is that going to happen in this world if it's not happening on a college campus? And if it can't happen here, I don't have a lot of hope for where it can happen in the rest of the world. And there are structured um, opportunities on campuses. And I think that outside partners, private businesses can can learn a lot and can invest a lot in these kind of forums in, in a way that maybe they haven't so far. Do you think your, the student council will reflect on the last year and the sort of the challenges of having these conversations where you're saying there should be the spaces, but you're saying it was difficult because people don't all agree that the rules are made in neutral ways. They say it's okay. some rules, which, and this is interesting because I always feel universities have moved in different ways. So many universities I've attended didn't include women up to 40 right. years ago. Mm -hmm. And somehow that was considered the end of civilization when suddenly women were in the room and had to be listened to yeah. and had a voice. Mm -hmm. So I think it's possible to rethink certain rules, for example. I mean, the rules were literally sort of like women could not be in the room and then they had to change yeah. the rules. So I always feel the examples for progress that still recognizes that people can work together rather than saying, if we change one rule, we abandon the whole system. But this is your take. It seems to me that you think you can work within structures and institutions to improve them, right? So you worked on the inside. You were really thrown into one of the most difficult years. So I really, I'm incredibly impressed in a way that you've taken this on. And then you sort of, you would seem to have both a voice for the students and you also thought for yourself, what is my moral responsibility, right, as a leader. Yeah, I think this year taught me a lot about the different types of actors needed to create change. And I learned that, yes, I am most at home as an institutional actor working within structures, because as much as I identify as a progressive at heart and studied radical feminist theory and philosophy, the structures aren't coming down overnight. And the, the locus of power in our country is not going to be dismantled in a day, a year, a generation, a century. And we need agitators on the outside. We need grassroots movements to really push the boundaries of what's possible. But we also need partnerships with those on the insides to make change from within. And those types of actors have to see the, the mutual benefit in one another. They don't have to agree with all of their tactics, but they need to respect that they can both be working towards the same angles. Right. It's this kind of Audre Lorde question. Can the master's right. tools exactly. dismantle the master's house? And right. 
Audrey Lord, who is just an inspiration because she did both and all of the above and more as an mm -hmm. activist, an outsider, <laughs> a yeah. mother, a lesbian, a poet, but who also published for the world and the world read her work. So in some ways, I think she's this kind of balancing is probably a daily practice where to yeah. be with an outsider inside. So I really want to thank you, Sarah. And again, it's really um, it's incredibly impressive to see that your reflective way of being elected leader and the fact that you were elected during one of the most tumultuous years and difficult years at the University of Virginia. I really think that's a, it's really speaks volumes <laughs> to you. And so I want to thank you and wish you the best of luck writing your memoir. And then I really want to sort of already book you when the book's, you know, more advanced and we can talk again because you'll reflect more on this experience, I'm sure. I would love to speak again. And thank you so much for your time today. Okay. Thanks, Sarah. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye. -bye. Yeah. Bye.